kindly holler, a kindly small. Dr. Sibakuli, her death is on the wall. Say it to me, if you got something to confess. I heard all about her, he was going down slow. I heard it all. The wireless radio from down in the blue dogs, way down in Keyless. I'm searching for love, for inspiration. On that pirate radio station, coming out of Luxembourg and Budapest. Radio signal, clear as can be. I'm so deep in love that I can hardly see. Down in a flat land. Well, it's that time again. We're sitting down at the old oak table here in the Taylor Park, downtown Oak Hill, Florida, for another edition of A Beer With. Um, this evening, uh, it's more like a whiskey with. Our guest this time around is none other than Mike Allen. Um, some folks may know him simply as Tailing Permit from back in the day on the Drake message board. Mike, welcome aboard. It's I'm extremely happy to be here um, back in the Taylor Park. Uh, it brings back a lot of memories. I mean, it, we only had a few times together, but uh, I truly enjoyed those times with you. And uh, uh, it, it means the world to me to have a friend like you to be able to come back and experience this again. It, it really means a lot to me. Thanks. Thanks for that. Well, listen... Um, a lot of people that are listening most likely don't know um, much about you and your history. Um, I guess to, to most of the folks that uh, do know um, some of your history, they know that you've been gone for a while from, from the state of Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how long have you been gone? Um, it's been a you know, I, I, guess, I always have a tough time, uh, you know, as I get older, you know, th- memories stretch out and fade. Yeah. Um, it's been, uh, I, I remember uh, the actual day because uh, on that same day, the owner of Mr. Z's, he had his first child on the day that I left. And then uh, I remember I was on the phone with him while I was driving uh, the rider truck. Uh, to go back to Chicago because I, you know, had just, you know, I'd gotten into Boise State University, and um, I was driving my stuff from Key West uh, to Chicago, and um, he was in the delivery room with his wife. So I believe it was December 9th, uh, 2010, was the day that I left Key West. And so yeah, it's been it's been a long time, and it was kind of funny because I was in the midst of trying to be the snowstorm that was in the midst of coming into uh, Chicago at the time. So I was really hauling ass. Yeah, the old hammer down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was in Which, the, uh, in, in a rider truck, that means you're uh, yeah, there's fucking no, there's buried no, there's in there's 55. No cruise, there's no cruise control. There's no cruise control, and, and the seat only goes back so far. And, and it, yeah, that was just... 
it was something of its own. So, so you've been gone for a decade or a little more, uh, but you're, you're back down. You're a Florida resident again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, there's many things to be said about uh, COVID. Um, I, I, I truly believe and, and I'm thankful uh, that the girlfriend, my girlfriend and I, um, we have but are truly thankful um, for things that have changed it for the good thing, for, you know, for the, for the good sense. There's always a silver lining mm-hmm. is that, uh, you know, she went uh, to not having to be in the office and she could be wherever she wanted to be. So, and you know, the things were happening. We were living in downtown Chicago, right off the, you know, the magnificent mile. And uh, a lot of stuff was happening then COVID and you had the riots and, you know, they had locked the door and people were smashing windows and we couldn't go grocery shopping because, you know, everything was closed down, and and then all of a sudden we decided to pick everything up and just say, "Hey, let's go to Florida." So yeah. you're 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 actually kind of a refugee. Uh, yeah, um, in that sense, yeah. And <laughs> I just I'm just so thankful to be back in the state that I I, I truly I mean you know, I wasn't born and raised here, but I consider myself you know I, people will call me a freshwater conch because I spent you know ten years in in Key West, but. Uh, I am just extremely thankful to be back in in the state that I really truly call home. I didn't. I always thought of myself as an outcast living in Illinois. All right. So, you've touched on it. You, uh, like you said, spent uh, a decade um, in Key West, and uh, while you were down there, um, you did a lot of fly fishing. Yeah. But before we get to that, um, let's find out a little bit more about Mike. Probably, probably let's talk about the time when, when everybody referred to you as Mikey, Little Mikey. Mm-hmm. So, not that I know that anybody's ever called you no, Little Mikey. No, my father would call me Moose <laughs> okay. when I was that. <laughs> All right, so how did you end up picking up fly fishing to begin with? Uh, so there was this, uh, this fishing tournament at uh, uh, this country club we belonged to, and... Uh, uh, it was, you know, my father was... This is back in the Midwest. Back in the Midwest, yes. Um, and uh, so it was a fishing tournament. And the, and the reason for the fishing tournament is they were trying to get rid of the amount of panfish that were in in the pond. It was a pretty decent-sized pond. And so they were trying to get rid of... Because there was an overabundance of, pond, of panfish, and they wanted more bigger bass in there. So um, they had a tournament, and they were getting rid of some of the panfish. And then I saw this kid off in the, you know, in the far beyond, you know, just kind of waving, throwing this thing. And I asked my father, I said, so what? what is that? What is he doing? And my father said, well, he's fly fishing. And I said, uh, well, how does that work out? And, and he said, well, you know, it's just a different thing than the conventional tackle that we're using. And I didn't get into it until, you know, it's just the biggest cliche. It's a river runs through it. Okay. Which is what got me into it. And um, I think I was 12, 11 or 12, when I watched that movie. And I was like, that's it, man. That's what I want. That's what I need. And uh, I remember getting this uh, for Christmas. I got this, I think, Scientific Angler's 3M package that had the... The backing, you know, the reel, the rod, the uh, the line, the leaders, and uh, and also, you know, I feel so old saying this, a VHS, VHS tape 
you know, showing <laughs> instructional how to do how to put everything together. Okay. And I spent nothing more than a lot of time casting that rod in the snow, just on the snow. Everything was frozen over and casting it in the snow. And how old do you think you were about when this happened? I think 11 or 12. Okay. So snow finally melts, things warm up. You start fishing a little bit. Yeah, I, I started like you targeting. stick with it. There was um, absolutely, yeah. There was, uh, you know, uh, an area that had retention ponds, and they were full of fish. Mm-hmm. And I started fishing, you know, panfish, bass, other things. And then we had a cottage in Wisconsin, and uh, I started. Uh, I remember they had a paddle boat. And I used to go on my own little voyages in the paddle boat. And there's a little lagoon that I would, you know, kind of go down to. You go underneath this bridge, and it was shallow water. And then you could see the bass moving, and you could you could see these fish moving. And uh, and I just started fishing for them. I mean, that was that was the start of it. And I just started getting really hardcore into it. And then my father would, you know, we'd always go to the opener of trout season uh, in Michigan. My grandfather had a cabin in Kilkaska, Michigan. And I don't know why my dad wanted to go for the opener. Because, like, the opener, I think, was April 1st in Michigan. And that's the worst time of the year to go to Michigan. Because it's, like, northern Michigan, Kilkaska is way up there. And it's still snowing. And this is back in the days where you were wearing rubber waders or neoprenes. Those are those are your choices, right? And, uh, and we did that, and then eventually kind of got a little more serious. Now was your dad fly fishing for, never, for the opener? Never, but you were. I was okay, yeah. and uh, got a little a little more serious, and we got a guide on the old Sabo. Uh, drift boats. Mm-hmm. You've ever seen those? Where yeah, the guys, they're long and pulling. he pulls it down. Yeah, it's yeah. really tight banks there, right? Yeah, a lot of there's brush. a lot of sweepers. Yeah. There's a lot of sweepers there. And uh, I remember him pulling up to this fly shop, and then the fly shop opened. And I was like, "Can we get a guide? Because I really want to see this river." And then we walked in, and, and the shop owner said, "Let me see if I can get someone at the last minute." I remember sitting in the car. Like, please let someone answer the phone and so we can go out and do this. And I'll never forget his name. His name is Bob. And because I wasn't that great at that point in time, of course. Right. I hadn't that, had that much of time. And with those sweepers, you get your fly hung up in the trees a lot. They'll be like, Bob, my, my fly's in the trees again. Uh-huh. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, it was... It was incredible. I'm just, I mean, I, I I truly think if there's one place that I want to go back to uh, again, it's the Asabo. Uh, that water, it just it's it's so beautiful to me. Uh, the upper the upper you know the the mitten of of Michigan is 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 it's incredible. It's all sand sand bottom, and it's just in the name. They were the first. I think believe that they were the first um, TU chapter happened in northern Michigan. I believe that's the case. And so they were the first ones to actually actually nail um, logs into the sides of the river so that trout could finally hide, hide under there. Right. Mm-hmm. So 
you you had this awesome experience with your dad and Bob. So clearly you're you're living that dream. You know the the movie's coming alive for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. And what was the next progression of your fly fishing journey? Uh, I don't know if you get to. I mean, I let me let me ask you this way. So Bob was you know that day. Mm-hmm. Um, you go home. You're back to. You know the paddle boat. If you're at the cottage or you're mm-hmm. you're pond hopping around the neighborhood, did you ever? It was there a fly shop in the town where where you grew up? No. So at some point, not that I knew of, right? So at some point, did you ever find somebody that you know kind of took you under their wing and taught you a little bit more, or are you just you're just continuing to self teach? At some point. You, you had to have left the neighborhood. What, what was the the first experience where you struck out on your own to fly fish? Um, I think it was, you know, I went to military school for a while, um, came back, and I would tell you I wasn't the greatest child in the world. Um, but I, one thing I could guarantee you is that um, even if I was being punished and if I'd broken a fly rod, that there would always be another fly rod to be bought, you know. And I always took care of my gear. So, in in, in I broke a lot of fly rods back then. Um, maybe not as much care as I take today, right? But um, yeah, I did. So then we get to me, you know. I, there was a part in time. I this is a long story, and I'm gonna kind of cut it up short as to where I spent some time in Utah, and. Um, at a ranch school, and then right after getting off out of that, um, I think I was 18 and uh, in high school, and that's where I found my first fly shop. It was Flying Field. It was a, they called it the Grand Slam of fly shops. I can't remember the third one. It was Flying Field, Trout and Grouse, and something else. And I met this guy named Dan. I think Dan was probably maybe like 23, 24 years old. And... Um, yeah, he kind of took me under his wing, and that's when I first bought my uh, my first like real expensive fly rod, and and I was living in Geneva, Illinois, which is like right where the Fox River rolls through, and then Dan and I spent a lot of time fishing together. He taught me how to double haul. Um, yeah, he taught me a lot of things, and then that was when we first learned about uh, dry fly fishing for carp. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if you want me to kick in. Yeah, in. let's hear it. Um, so when the temperatures, so Geneva has a dam right downtown, a spillway dam, which causes the, you know, the, the, the suction flows. If you get close to it, I've had morons that were there at the point in time. They get too close, and you get sucked into it, you're not getting out of it. Like, he has that, 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 that cycle spin. Right. You know what I'm talking about. Um, but when that river gets to a temperature, like, in the middle of summer, it gets low. And it creates all these all this foam in the pocket water. And then it has huge caddis hatches. And so the caddis gets stuck in the foam as they're trying to hatch. So then these carp are up sucking the foam trying to get to the caddis to eat the caddis i mean this was i think 98 i think it was 97 98 
and um, I, and then we were we, we were sight casting for them with simulators on top, and I think we were using four weights, four weights, three weights, four weights, and and using those to go after them. And once you hook into those things, and they they use were these the big current. like common carp. What's that? Yeah. Big commons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they used the current to go downstream. That's where I was like, I was, I, I, I mean, I was already hooked. But when, when we figured that out, I was doing that all the time. I mean, I would get up in the morning at five o'clock in the morning. I'd go into my full tire for high school, get into my waders, go do that. Because they do it in the morning as well. Mm-hmm. And then I get out of my waders and go to school. And I still had the waiter funk on me. <laughs> so, but, I mean, that was the first, the real first, like, first love of something. I was like, this is what I really love, this and that. So you're still in high school. You're you're falling further and further in love with this pastime, this lifestyle, this sport, you know, Different people call it different things. It's uh, probably an expectation in your household that uh, once high school's over, you're going to be heading to college. Mm-hmm. Um, was that on your program? Nope, it wasn't. I uh, dropped out of high school. I did. Um, I dropped out of high school. I had my own car. I had a Jeep Wrangler. And um, just one day, I, I said, uh, I'm going to Montana. And... Uh, my mom was against it. My dad was like, anything to get you to just figure your own life out. Um, I'm not going to make this like as pretty as it was. I, I was thrown out of the house. You know, I wasn't the greatest kid in the world. I was thrown out of the house. I remember I was sleeping on my sister's floor at the point in time, and my father said, all right, put together a plan, what you're going to do when you get out to Montana. And I said, right, I'm going to work for a fly shop. I'm going to find something to do. And I put together a plan. I had to meet him in his office at a certain point in time. And uh, and, he, and he told me, okay, I'm going to give you 500 bucks to make it out to Montana. And if you make it out to Montana and you get a job, then I'll give you another 250 bucks. But that's all. And then you have to do it on your own. And so I packed my Jeep up. And I drove. And that drive was now. Was it was this like your senior year of high school? Yeah, I was eighteen, so I was okay. able to drop out. And um, yeah, in that drive, I think it was August of twenty eighteen. I think it, I'm going to get my timelines wrong, um, but in uh, that drive was something else. I remember going to Nebraska, and there was like severe thunderstorms rolling through and there were tornadoes and i remember like if you could if you have ever owned a jeep wrangler you know there's only two settings i mean backward i this was a 98 wrangler so there's only two settings there's low and there's high and i remember driving to nebraska and it got so bad that i had to pull off the side of the road and um a cop pulled up behind me and I immediately thought in my head that I don't want this guy to get wet. So I'm going to jump out of the car and I'm going to run towards that cop car. And I'm going to tell him, I'm okay. It's just I can't see right now. 
And thinking about that now was probably not the greatest idea, you know, <laughs> you know, cause you, you never want to put a police officer in that position. So, but he was okay with it. He said, Hey, there's a tornado not too far away from us. I'd like you to drive up and get underneath the, the overpass. And, um, I remember right after that, the hail started hitting and there were dents in the front hood from the hail. Holy shit. Yeah. And, um, and I got into the underpass, and by the time I was about ready to get out of the car, the storm had passed. So I don't know where the tornado was. I don't know. I, but I kept going on my way. I slept in my car whenever I had to stop, and I felt I was too exhausted. I got to Montana. My original idea was that I was going to live in Billings because I had no idea that Montana is pretty much two different states. You know, I don't know if you've ever been to Billings before. I have not. Billings is not Montana. And um, so I got to Billings, and it's pretty much an industrial city. And uh, I just said to myself, I think I stopped at uh, McDonald's. And then um, I was like, no, this isn't it. So I went to Livingston. Okay. And I spent some time in Livingston. And um, I met this guy that was from Boston and just out of happenstance, and uh, we fished together. And then he said, you should go further west. You know, go to maybe Twin Bridges and ask Winston for a job. And then after our time fishing together, I did. I, I got in my car. I drove to Winston. The first thing I did is went right up their front door. And asked for a tour. And they said, well, our tours are only at 2 p.m., so come back tomorrow. So I was like, okay. So I just kind of checked it out. And they have, I don't know if you've ever been into, you know, Winston Shop. Is that they have all their rods in the lobby. So you can cast whatever you want to cast. And um, came back the next day. And I met Mike Ewing, who was the general manager at the time. And um, he said, I, he said, because uh, my Jeep was, like, covered in Winston logos. I called it the, the, the Jeep Wrangler Winston Edition. So it had Winston logos on both sides and Winston logos on top. And that was my, my first real fly rod. I think it cost, like, five sixty at the time to get a three-piece, five-weight LT. I still have it to this day. Um, and uh, he said... Uh, yeah, I you know I see your your Jeep. It's pretty cool, whatnot. And then I remember, uh, you know, going back from there, saying I'm going to work here. This is going to be my job that I get. And uh, I came back the next day, and I I walked into the receptionist, and I said, "Can I see Mike Ewing?" And she said, uh, "Let me see if he's available." And Mike, and she said, "Well, he's on the call right now. Can you wait some time?" And I just took my time. They have a museum, you know, did all that. And he came back outside. He's like, all right, come into my office and sit down. I said, I will work for peanuts. I just want to be a part of this. And he said, well, we can't pay you in peanuts, but I think there may be an opening for you. So the next day I came back. I met with Annette McLean, who I think is now the general manager of, of uh of Winston and she said 
can you do this? Can you measure this? Can you measure that? And I was, I was the absolute worst student in math classes. Okay. And I said, I just fake it until you make it. I said, yes, absolutely, I can do that. Now, did they have you fill out like a employment application? Mm-hmm. And they, what they did you called, say about school? Well, I told them I dropped out. Okay. And then they called Blind Field. Because I had, I, I was in there ev- almost every day. I was in there all the time. Um, and they called Pliant Field, and they said, "Yeah, Mike is our unofficial Winston rep, as we would call it." Okay. And then, then Mike said, "Yeah, Annette, you know, she was like, okay, we can get you into here. We can get you in the spot. It was six dollars and twenty-five cents an hour <laughs> back in the day, mm-hmm. and I was working in blank rolling." And the the first thing that if you are at the bottom of the totem pole, what you're doing is you're you're cutting patterns, and then you are sanding blanks, which wet sanding blanks is the worst possible thing you want to do in your life. I'm sorry, it is not the worst possible thing you want to do in your life, but it ruins every single part of your clothes that you're wearing. Just I mean, all the dust and the no, it, it, it's like the wet. It's the the splatter from you okay, know, and, and it's just it's not a glorious job. It is, but I was still a part of it. And then I don't know. So so from the time you walked in and said, "Hey, you know, I want to work here," and they said, "Yeah, okay, kid, come back tomorrow. The the, the tour is tomorrow," and then you came back the third day. Um. Did did you get hired on the fourth day? Did it take a week? Did it take you know? I think it took uh, uh, maybe a couple of days. And of course, they asked, "Where are you living?" And I said, "Oh, it's just down the road." And this is a small town. Twin Bridges has probably about maybe two, three hundred people in it. Right. Someone that knew. I mean, she could just ask around town, and they'd be, they'd just be going. There was this red rest stop just outside on the Beaverhead River. Um. That I was sleeping in, mm-hmm. and um, and that knew you know, she knew she played dumb to me because I was like you know I was just like I just need a foot in the door right, and she knew, but uh, yeah I spent the first I think the first month living in my car. So at what point did you call your dad and say hey I made it out here and by God I have a job? Oh and it was like immediately, and then he sent the thing straight to Winston. Um, yeah, and Annette, like, she, like, kind of nonchalantly nudged me and said, hey, I hear there's a uh, uh, an apartment available above Mackler's grocery store. And I said, I appreciate that. And we knew, I, I just, I was so naive, but, and I knew she knew, but I was like, I still didn't want to admit it. Right. And then there was a point, too, where they started, you know, as soon as they get past, I believe it's like October or September, they lock the doors on the rest stop. The rest stop is really nice. Um, the bathroom facilities, I remember brushing my teeth in there, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I remember waking up one night in the middle of the night while I was sleeping in the car. It's like, if, if you can imagine, as you bring, there's not much room to sleep in. And it gets cold there. I remember waking up in the middle of the night. And there was a herd of mule deer that ran by my car. I remember like, hearing this rumbling. I woke up and I was like, what the hell is that? 
and there was a herd of mule deer that just ran by my car. And I was like, what the hell is this? And so yeah, she said, you know, there's a space up there. So I ran into the space up there. The heat didn't work. Um, the refrigerator didn't work. You know, the soap tops didn't work, but it was a place to sleep that wasn't my car. Right. And um, I don't know. I was just thankful for that. And it was like, it was 250 bucks a month, I think it was. And I didn't ask questions. I mean, I, I should have been like, can you fix this? Can you fix that? I was just grateful to be out, out of my car because I was like, I was just getting antsy about that. So how long did you spend at Winston? Mm. I believe it was like a little under a, a year. I mean, we're starting to get into like, I want to talk about, yeah, I'm not saying I want to talk about it, but uh, I was naive. You know, I was naive thinking, you know, they, they give all these advertisements to Winston as the, every single one of our employees is a major fly fisherman and that's all we hire and i got into it and um I, there was this my manager in blank rolling did not like me she did not like me at all i was not a you know i was a transplant um and then i wasn't known by mike in twin bridges everyone called me chicago okay and um and so you know, and then she tried to kind of open up the door to me to say, hey, come on, come spend Thanksgiving with me. But I'm like, I, I don't, and until this, to this, to this day, I, I still don't. I'm, I'm, I'm much of a loner, I am. And um, I believe it was uh, June, I met this other guy who's a guide, I believe from Idaho, who would... Um, He'd bring his boat over, and then he'd bring his camper over, and he'd spend the summer fishing there. I met him, I don't know, some, somewhere in Twin Bridges, and then he said, dude, the salmon flies are going off. And that was the one hatch that I was like, I, this is the one thing that I've got to experience while I'm here is a salmon fly hatch. And uh, so I called in sick and uh, from Winston. And... Uh, we went out for the sample hatch. I don't know. If, I was, you, you've never experienced that. I mean, it's like birds flying in the sky. And then the males and females attached to each, to each other, and then they're both flying in the sky, and it's just incredible. And the thing about the sandfly hatch is that it goes by water temperature. So it moves up the river. And why they call it Twin Bridges is because the big hole and the beaverhead meet together to to form the Jefferson River. And um, I remember fishing with him, and uh, he was like, all right, let's get into it. And we got into it. And he's like, all right, we're done. So it's about, you with the sandfly hatch, it's about there's one section before when the sandflies come off is that the fish are eating all the nymphs, mm -hmm. nymph stage. And then there's one section as to where they're starting to eat, eat top water. And then there's another section where they're just tired, tired and sick of eating those. And they're just, they're full of the brim of eating. So it's like you put in and then you roll down the stream and you get into those sections and you're like, okay, we got to, we got to, we got to get back 
get the get the boat back on the trailer and then and then move up a little further down the river and then experience the same thing over and over again. That's what it, I mean. That's what it was. And when I came back to work the next day at Winston, of course I had the the sunglass, yeah, tan, and they knew. And the manager, the uh, Annette was out; she was not there. And the general manager, um, you know, Mike was not there. And then she blasted me on it. And I said, well, I thought this was all about guys that were fishing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, like, again, I was naive. And uh, I said, I quit. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, I need you to write that on paper. And I, I wrote it on paper that I quit. And so I left. So where did the wind blow Chicago? No, I went to uh, Montrose. So out to Colorado. Yep, I went to I went to Montrose and I went straight to Scott. Okay. And I showed up there the way I did at Winston, filled out an, applic- an application, and the this time you have experience. Yeah, and the guy was like, "This is the first time I've ever had someone come to me with experience," but we're not hiring right now. So I said, "Okay." So I said, no, and now I've got to go back to Chicago. It was the summertime, and I'll go back to Chicago. And so I did. And uh, my stepfather owns, uh, did own, one of the uh, largest equestrian centers in Chicago. And so I spent the summer doing jump crew. And um, and that's where the horses are jumping, and then you're putting the poles back on, the blah, 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 and you're moving stuff around, you're raking the, you know, the, the course, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, I'm going to Seattle. So I got in my car, I drove from Chicago to Seattle, and I went straight to Sage. Okay. And Jerry Seam uh, was the original... Um, uh, he was the original designer of Winston Rods. And then I, I believe he left. Or there was a bad blood between Winston and Jerry Seam. And so Jerry Seam went to, went to Sage. And then so, and I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. I, I made a lot of connections with, with Glenn Brackett while I was there at Winston. Um I remember because there were two separate shops. There was the new shop that they made in Winston, and then there was the bamboo shop, which is the original shop in Winston. Because Winston moved over from San Francisco back in, I believe, it was in the '80s, some important time. And I made a a real connection with with um, Glenn Brackett, and uh, I knew that if I got off of work. And I brought a sixer of Corona over to over to Glen Brackett. He'd be like, "All right, go ahead, go root." Because to me, it was be like, "I just want to go. I want to go find the old stuff." Because there was there was history embedded in the bamboo shop. There were old Loomis blanks. There were old J.F. Kennedy Fisher glass blanks back there. And then there was all this stuff: the old rod socks, blah blah. blah. And. Um, and so Glenn would let me search, and like I was, it was like, like treasure hunt. Go root around. Mm-hmm. And then I also got to sit and watch, you know, the whole bamboo bamboo process. Right. And it was incredible as to what the two. 
my dad came down to visit me, and Jerry Custick, I, I don't know if you've ever heard his name. He was working there at the point in time. He's a big seal hatter. He's gone. He's guided in Kamchatka, and he's all over the place. He's written amazing books. He gave us a tour of the bamboo shop, and and I love his uh, his his wording of how things go between the the graphite shop and the bamboo shop. You know, he said here it's loosey goosey, half ass. You know, it, it not half ass in, in the sense as to where we make things half ass, but half ass is to where we take our own time, right? You know, to create these rods because I mean, that's too grand for a, for a bamboo rod, right? So, but yeah. So anyhow, so I went to I went to uh, Seattle, uh, Bainbridge Island, uh, to Versage, and uh, I used. Um, Glenn's team, and they came straight back out, and they said, "No, uh, <laughs> it's not happening." I think, I think Mike Ewing, who was the general manager, might have got two of them. So then, after that, I uh, I went to Exhibitio, which is uh, which is on Seattle, you know, which is downtown Seattle. Did the same exact thing, and uh, I got a job there at Exhibitio. So, what's the time span from that original? And here's five hundred bucks. You make it there. You actually get a job. You get another two fifty. To what was your total time? It was quick at Winston. It was quick. I, I think I went out to Winston in uh, the fall of I don't know, like ninety. I don't know, like time. a year. Yeah, it was quick. I mean, I wasn't there that long. I know we're gonna look back and. And think I'm getting my timelines wrong, but yeah, it was quick. I mean, I'm I'm 18, 19 years old. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Right. I just find it interesting. You know, like you hear most guys that you know strike off to be a trout bum, and you know, air quotes, trout bum. Um, you know, they go out and they find a job at a fly shop. You'd already kind of had the fly shop experience when you were in Utah. And now you're on this fucking not, not epic. Utah was I was in a, a ranch school at Utah. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't I I I'd gotten a little bit of fly shop experience when I was in Chicago at Riverside Sports, which was right next to the Fox River in Geneva, but that was very short lived. Uh, but no, I had not had any experience whatsoever uh, in regards to the industry until I uh, I worked for Winston. Yeah, well, that's what I, that's what I was saying, and, and gonna tie together it's interesting most people's mindset is you know the job is to go out and be a guide or their job is to go out and work at uh, a shop and here you are you're like you're doing the manufacturer Mm -hmm. um hopscotch Mm -hmm. so obviously sage you know shuts the door you find yourself a a place at ex officio i will say this one of the biggest scams in this industry is how much it costs to build a rod as to what the, the, the markup is in, in regards to the retail price. That is the biggest scam in the world. I think, you know, I think it costs them like 200 bucks. I, I mean, this is right when, when I got there, it was, it was like uh, the boron age had just begun. And, um, God, it was such a scam. And, I, it, it, and you know, it was like, 
it was less than that. And I think I think as an employee, if you built your own rod, it was two hundred bucks. If you wanted to like just have buy a rod from them while you're an employee, I think it was like maybe like two seventy five, three hundred. But then the markup was like five twenty five, five fifty, five sixty five, five seventy five, and that kind of irked me. I was like, I think that is pretty much the biggest scam in, in this industry is that, you know, it doesn't cost them that much to build these rods. So then why are they, why do they feel the need to, um, to push it off on the fly shops to get these? I mean, the fly shops don't get to make their, I mean, in some ways they do, but in some ways they don't. Like you, you cannot discount a rod unless the manufacturer says. At least that was the way in the back in the, in, the, in the olden days it was. Right. And so everyone had to keep their prices accordingly. Yeah. Um, but I just thought it was such a scam. I mean, because like, why why are we doing double the price to the man? You know, to the to you know to the actual person who's fly fishing? Why? Is not the case, and I've never figured it out. Never understood it. It's just like why I work at I worked at Ex Officio back in the day. That was a seventy-five dollars shirt to buy. <laughs> right. I mean, why? I guess because uh, most of us out here end up paying it. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. So, well, uh, your time at Ex Officio, uh, you're out. You're in Seattle now. Mm-hmm. Um, how long? How long did that last? <laughs> I think it lasted six months. Um, you know, I was kind of doing uh, got pick and pack. They had their, you know, their. Uh, uh, so you doing shipping? Pack was was underneath the floor, and and it was two people that that owned that were partners at ex officio, and they were in in the midst of being bought out by Orvis at the point in time. So they were like, if you want a job here, that's great, but we can't guarantee you anything for the next, you know, you know, six months because Orvis is buying us out. And it was in the realization is that they were they were buying them off for their bug off gear is what they were buying them off for. And I think it was I'm trying to remember the name, Joe Joe and, and another guy, those were the two owners. And I remember Joe bringing me into his office one day because it was like you had to fall in line with the Orvis mantra in order to kind of like work there. And I had a problem with Orvis back in the day because their stuff was not great. Like I, I had some some rods and some other stuff that would just fall apart. And they weren't really, I mean, they're... Customer service was just not in line as to where they should be. As to where today they are, to me, again, I, this is just a, you know, this, this is what, what I think is that Orvis is, is probably one of the greatest um, customer service. Uh, you know, if you break a rod, I think they're going to immediately ship it back to you with a new rod. And uh, back in those days, that wasn't the case. And so I remember Joe bringing me into, and I remember talking up Winston because I loved Winston Rods. And he said, why do you think Winston's so great? And I said, well, I mean, there's a history behind it. Um, and the way, I mean, they, at that point in time, they had their unlimited, you know, warranty. I don't know if they still do these days, but there's a lot of conversation about it. Um, and, I, and I'll never forget that, um, I think it was uh, 2000... I believe it was 2000. Uh, Ex officio flew me down to Salt Lake City for the uh, 
um, the, the the Fly Fishing Retailers Convention. Yeah, I IFTD. Mean, that, that's what it was called back mm-hmm. in the day. And I was blown out of my mind because uh, C. Benzak, he was the head of sales. And he was like, I want this kid with me when I go down there. <laughs> it's like, why? <laughs> now, now, now that I'm thinking about it, why would you want this 19-year-old kid? You're going to take... Like all responsibility for what he does. I mean, like, why would you want him there? And again, I wasn't fluent in customer service. I knew the product. Oh, I knew the product. Like, I he's like, okay, we're going down there. I need you to like. He gave me the catalog. I need. I need you to know every piece of you know fabric that we use. Blah blah blah, and do that. And um, I did that. I came back to him, and he actually. Uh, you know, he uh, gave me kind of a test as to if I knew, you know, all the products uh, that uh, they were using. And, of course, I did because that's all I did. I spent night and day and week just kind of learning their, their product and knowing it. Right. So, you know, I've been to the fly fishing retailers, you know, the IFTD many different occasions and uh you know to me it was always like a big family reunion mm-hmm. um the whole sales part of it um is a little taxing you know everybody's trying to leverage fly shop owners into making the biggest orders possible um ultimately depending on who gets to owner A first or owner B first, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. they've got requirements for the amount of product that yeah. they have to buy. Um, you know, the big hitters in the industry um, end up getting these guys kind of behind the curve financially where a lot of the smaller manufacturers mm-hmm. struggle to get orders at those big shows. So, and, and, and to say, at your point, it's like, where did Tarpenware go? Do you remember Tarpenware? I've never heard of them. Oh, Tarpenware was a huge thing when um, I, I would think I was 15, 16 years old, 17 years old. Okay. Uh, and Flip was a, one of their high ends in it. And okay. if you go back to their Flip's old shows, which are all now, and I actually spent last the other night. I went down the rabbit hole and watched Walker's K, uh-huh. and you can see him wearing tarpenware, and all of a sudden, it's gone. Gone. Yeah, but if, you know, tarpenware was eighty, ninety dollars for a shirt. I don't know where it originated as to who the start of it, and and where I just I just knew it just kind of popped up out of nowhere. I had a friend that went down to Sanibel. And I was like, just get me a tarpenware shirt. I just want one. <laughs> right. And he got it. And he came back and he's like, I got you a tarpenware shirt. $80. And I was like, wait, what? $80? And I was like, okay, not a problem. You know, but still, it was like, how do these things pop up and then just disappear? Right. Mm-hmm. So you are with Ex Officio for how long after that? Uh, not long. Um, God. Any, anything I, I, crazy happened while you were yes, in Salt Lake? Uh, many crazy things happened while I was in Salt Lake. Um, uh, let's hear it. Oh, God. Come on. Uh, come on. I was 19. They had a meet and greet. This huge, I mean, you got to think, this was a major thing back in the day until it got smaller. Um, God. And we had shirts that we were selling. 
um, to people that were there at the, I mean, this is the, if people don't know, this is only the only people that are allowed at these shows are the retailers. So this isn't open to the public. And, um, so we were selling shirts, you know, brand new shirts that we had just come out with just to get them to wear it. Mm -hmm. So we're selling them for, you know, obviously a quarter of the cost just to get them to wear it. And I'm like, okay, this shirt costs 20, 40 bucks. And I'm just stuffing my pockets full of money. These people are buying these shirts and my pockets were full just of money. Bulging. Yeah. And it's like, how do you account for this as being a business afterwards? It's just like, I'm just like, there's no, there's no written receipt. It's just like, take this. And I put the money into my pocket and I'm like, how is this working out? And, uh, of course, you know, we had a, a very successful um, uh, show. I mean, the, God, our booth was incredible. It was beautiful. I mean, they had curtains, and I remember we were steaming stuff before, and I was vacuuming, and I got the opportunity to, uh, you know, to cast rods as well. And I remember the first thing that happened was uh, I went out to the casting pond, and I grabbed, I went into the Winston booth, I grabbed my favorite, I think it was a 4876 LT that was a uh, four piece. And it was my favorite. And I was like, I miss casting this rod so much. I grabbed it, put a reel on it. And they're like, hey, Mike, how you doing? You know, good to see you. Annette was like, why did you leave? Blah, 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 you know. And, um, and I remember going out to the casting pond and I was casting it. And I remember Mike Ewing walking up to the casting, walking up to me, taking the rod and grabbing it from me and taking it back to the Winston booth and being like, you're not welcome here. Oh, wow. Yeah. And and then there was the the meet and greet afterwards where it was like free beer. All you can drink. And they just, they were pouring it everywhere. And there's this, you know, 18, 19-year-old kid that's just drinking all the beer that he can and I ran into the owner. There was so much infighting in Winston at, the, at that point in time and that's what I've learned to not get involved with. You just, you just don't these days. You just, if you want to keep your job, you just don't get into the Just keep your mouth shut. Yeah. And, they, and, and for some reason I mean, it's like people were just like, kind of like kind of like just blowing off their scene to me. Um, and, uh, so I knew all the ins and outs of Winston and I knew, you know, the G the GM at this point in time, there's a lot of infighting going on and who shows up right next to, um, the free beer, um, you know, table. It's David Ondaji, who was the, uh, I'm going to, I probably murdered his last name, David Ondaji. Um, who was the owner of Winston. He bought it um, from uh, Glenn Brackett and um, Tom Morgan. And I had it out with him. Yeah, I had it out with him. I said, I don't know if you know who I am. Probably not. You know, they call me Chicago. But I, I tell you, your general manager is ruining this country. Or this country. This, this, <laughs> this, this, this company. And, um, and... Oh, God, if, if I would have just been a little bit smarter, I just would not have done that. But it just opened up. And he, I think you know me as to where I just, I don't let things go away. I kind of just, if, it, if it's important to me, 
I let it fly, and I let it fly with him. And the next day, the general manager showed up in the ex officio booth and screaming to me. And C. Benzak was not in there. He was off somewhere else. And the, and the general manager went to start screaming, I'm going to get you fired, I'm blah, 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 and, and this and that. And I was scared shitless. I really was. I was like, I was like, oh my god, what am I gonna do? Right. And um, for fuck's sake, I don't even remember what I said. I was drinking free beer. <laughs> no, I remember what I said. Oh, I remember. And that's the one. That's the one thing is that hey, I remember. I remember what I. I remember what I said. And there was a purpose to it. You know, there was a reason behind it because this was this guy, David Andonchi, was not living in Twin Bridges. His. Um, I believe his brother was the one who wrote the English patient. Patient, um, and uh, and he graduated from from Harvard. Uh, was a hockey star there, and then he lived in he lives in Los Angeles. So he has a disconnect from you know this you know from the company and from where he lives. So he he gets he gets what he wants to be told. So he's not like you know. He doesn't have his hands on everything, right. and uh, and he's looking at the numbers, but he's not understanding the the company, uh, the history yeah. and the, the no, culture. Not, not, not the history. He's not understanding the the camar- the company camaraderie. Um, is what he's not understanding, and and that was like uh, just a smack to the face to him. So I'm sure he went back to Mike Ewing and said, "What is this kid saying that and that?" Annette doesn't like, or Jerry, or the, the you know the bamboo shop doesn't like, blah blah. blah. I'm saying that a lot. I gotta stop saying that. But um, yeah, it was just it was a crazy time. Uh, and again, I, I'm thankful. <laughs> so, what was the fallout from the fallout? Was I I still had a job. I okay. did. Uh, I and um, I got a little too. Again, I was a little too naive. Um, they were starting to work. I think, again, we just quickly go back to Mike Ewing. It, when he was yelling at me, he was saying, if you would have just stayed at Winston, we would have definitely gotten you into the customer service. And that's what my plan was for you. I knew this all along was your plan. So it, he was being, he was telling me things. He was being mean, but also being nice. And again, uh, I... I just, I was just too naive at that point in time at 18, 19 years old. And, and when I was in, you know, in Twin Bridges, I remember this one guy that worked at, uh, I know we're going all over the place right now. Um, but I remember walking into his house cause I needed a shuttle to go from one spot to the next. And I walked into his house and I think he was 35 years old and, um, I walked into his house and there were nothing but beer cans everywhere. And I said to myself, "Is this going to be me at 35? If I take, if I continue to go down this corporate, not the corporate road, but continue to go down the Winston Road, is this going to be me when I'm at that age?" And I was just like, "Nope." And that was a part of me quitting. I forgot to say that, but yeah, that was that was a part of it. All right, so. After you get back from the the big show in Salt Lake, um, you're still working at Ex Officio, but that comes to an end at some point. Was that 
again, Mike lost interest and Mike quit? Or yeah, um, some of both. Um, there was also while I was in in at the show, someone said to me, I think it was God. I wish we could remember his name. He was the the rep for um, he was a Florida rep for Ex Officio. He said, if you really want to get in this game, because I mean that was the other great thing about going to these shows, you get to talk to people. I met Flip for the first time. Lefty Cray, Dave and em- Emily Whitlock, I met them all for the first time, and um, and I remember talking to this one rep in Florida. He's like, if you really want to get serious about this, you gotta go to Florida, man. That's where it's at. Saltwater fly fishing. That's seriously where it's at. And I did some time fishing, you know, in Seattle and and um, in Montana. And so I was like, okay, this is my next step. My next step is definitely going to be Florida. And so I went back to Chicago just for a little bit. And then I, I feel to mention this. I sold my car to actually get um, a uh, an apartment with a roommate in Seattle. And um, so I, Carlos. So I, uh, I think after Christmas, uh, I spent Christmas in Chicago. And then I said, you know, I really want to go to the Keys. And that's where it's going to be. And I had no idea what the keys were like. I had no idea what Key West would be like. I'd been to Key West once, I think when I was like eight or nine years old. I remember fishing right. Key West. I remember fishing Key West because uh-huh. we went out on, on a, you know, they call it a, a bay charter, or not a bay charter, a, a, a what do they call it? A backcountry charter is what they call it. And I remember, I think we were tossing at bonnet heads. I think that was it. But uh, yeah, so. Um, that was going to be the next chapter. Yeah, that was going to be the next chapter. And then we were, I, I took, I remember taking, getting on an Amtrak. I got on an Amtrak train and took the train from Chicago to Philadelphia, Philadelphia to Miami. And then, you know, this is before, like, really the internet was, like, I wasn't using it properly, didn't really. I, I again, being naive. I thought that... Uh, so you're probably, what, 20 now? Mm, yeah, I'm 20. I'm 20. Um, yeah, so I arrive at Miami Station on the Amtrak, and I met a uh, a conductor that actually lived in Marathon okay. while I was on the train. So he was like, okay, um, I will drive you down from Miami. Because originally, there was supposed to be a bus there, but I think it arrived at like 2 o'clock in the morning, and the bus didn't leave until like, I think like 8 a.m. Because there's, there's a Greyhound bus that runs through the Keys every day. And so he's like, I'll, I'll drive you down there, and then we get to Alamorada. And he's like, so where do you want to go? And I'm like, okay, this is Alamorada. <laughs> and I, I was expecting like this sprawling, me, the eat, eat. You look at the sign that says the sport fishing capital of the world. You're expecting this sprawling, like, tarpon just jumping everywhere and, you know, bonefish tailing everywhere. And and it was the middle of the night. And I was like, well, drop me at the OV. It dropped me off here. And I was right next to the, the OVN. The, the OVN is the ocean view in. And the joke is that it's, there's no ocean view. Is because the original o- OVN was on the ocean side, but then I, be- I believe it was the hurricane in 1935, the Labor Day hurricane blew it from the ocean side to the Gulf side, 
And and so I ended up at the OVN, and I spent a day there. And I'm, I think we're going to get way too far in on this. And I I know our time, and uh, but yeah, so I, re- I rented a room there for one night. I woke up the next day to see Alorada. There's not much there. All right, so let's take a break. We just got to Alorada, and uh, when we get back from the break, I think that we're going to start really getting into the next big chapter where you actually stuck around for a while somewhere yeah, for sure all right by the sea it caught my attention the old town has grown that's why I came along been treated well I raised all kinds of hell When a full tank was only a pen Ain't it quite funny How things turn around I heard I was in town Okay, we're back from a quick little break. Everybody's got their drinks filled back up, new beer here in hand. And uh, where we last left off, you had just spent your first night in the Florida Keys. Yeah, that I have. And um, so how does a young 20-year-old with no transportation that just woke up in the Middle Keys formulate his next move? Uh, you know, I, I kind of want to, you know, I, I want to talk about this, but I also want to get into uh, talking about permits. So I kind of want to, you know, just speed it up just a little bit. Um, you know, as while I was at, uh, um, the ranch school in Utah, and that's a whole different story. Uh, my father gave me a, uh, uh, an opportunity for a guide to fish with, and um, I was the, I was actually living on the dock behind the OVN. I was sleeping there. I slept there for probably three months. I think it was. Okay, so you stayed in Almorada for yeah. a while. Yeah, I was there for probably three months, and that was one of the years it was really cold. And and I'm not trying to make I'm not trying I'm not asking for empathy um but god you really don't know how cold 53 degrees is until you've like slept on a dock i mean yeah i had some stuff to get me through i mean there was a bench on the dock behind the ovn and i slept there for three months and i think the o the owner tolerated it i don't know why he did i don't know if it, it was just as out of the goodness of of himself but, uh, you know, I slept on a bench. I mean, it was a covered bench. And um, I remember waking up in the middle of the night shivering. And so anyhow, so uh, I had uh, a, a, a day to fish with. And what I did not talk about is the fly shop that I frequented in Chicago was Flying Field. And that was Diana Rudolph. 
Oh yeah, Diana. Yeah, she she was. She worked at Sandy's shop. She worked at at Flying Field way before she worked at at Sandy's shop. So she gave me um, a guide's number, Perry Coleman, um, and uh, I fished with him for a day, and um, and. I, it was it was a terrible day, and and Perry was like, "I'm not going to charge you for this day, blah blah blah." God, I gotta stop saying that. Um, I'm not going to charge you for this day. Let's do another day. Let's let's figure this out. Let's get to a warmer climate. You're here, and I was lying, saying that uh, you know I'm in a hotel. I'm here for a while, but in realization, I was sleeping on a dock behind the OVN, and um, and then one day he took me uh, to Biscayne Bay. And uh, I got to tell you, I don't know how it is today, but back then, I mean, those fish were, I think the first fish I threw at was probably 13, 14 pounds. It was probably the first fish that I threw at, and I hooked up with him. Yep, I hooked up to him. Yeah, I, I believe, and, and I think, I believe Perry would say the same thing, because, yeah, I'm going to go further but uh so we were stalking Biscayne Bay and um and not getting any shots and then all of a sudden this pair of fish came in and they were big fish and I know how big fish run because there's one bonefish one single bonefish that I know of that was somewhere around the edges of the contents um, that I had with Will, uh, that it was in the school of bonefish, and the big one was like in the middle. And that's what that's what he says. And we hooked up, and it, it and it cleared my line pretty quickly. So I I know what kind of weight in regards to how far how fast it peels off. And so the first bonefish I ever saw. He thought it was a permit. And he was like, oh, two permit coming in. And he was like, oh, no, no, they're bonefish. They're big bonefish. And I remember tossing the fly and placed it perfectly. And the fish ate, and it peeled off the amount of line that I had never witnessed before. And we had fished earlier in the day for redfish. So, I mean, they, everyone says that's that's practice practice you know you're practicing for you go redfish in the morning and then you go bonefish if you're if you're a newbie um is that you practice at redfish you know in the bay and then you go out to the ocean side and we did that one day and then we came back and and we did the uh biscayne bay thing and i never gotten my clock so rocked by a fish before i was just i i didn't have any clue in the world of what a fish could do to a reel. And it was just peeling line. And then it just popped off. And I was like, okay. I had to sit down. I had to sit down. I mean, I was just, I had to, I had to just take a moment for myself. And Perry, you know, he said, you know, this is, this is the way that it goes. You know, you're new, man. You just don't get to walk in here and, 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 and land a, you know, a, a, a double-digit bonefish. And then um, I remember, I think, I don't know if we were around Elliott Key or wherever we were around. 
um, we pulled over, and then this is the first time I saw a permit. And it was behind a ray. And this is, it's extremely uh, weird, is that um, permit don't follow rays in the lower keys, but they do in the upper keys. Interesting. And so there was a permit on the back of a ray. And Perry said, you know, put it there. And I put it there, and that fish turned off the ray, got on the fly, and and chased the fly for a good 30 feet. I didn't know how to feed them at that point in time. You know, I'm still learning bonefish. And and then all of a sudden that, that permit, like, looked at it, and it just peeled off of it. And I, and I was like, oh, you know, whatever. And I looked back at my guide, Perry. He's like, oh, my fucking God. Oh, God. Oh, God. And Perry had never, ever had a client uh, land a permit uh, on fly on his boat. And I, he was just like, oh, my God, this is incredible. And I was like, what is this permit game? And he's like, dude, you don't really... He doesn't say dude <laughs> he says that, but Perry was like, you don't know, Mike. You really just don't know what, what these fish are. And there's something different. We're chasing something right now, but there's something different. And, of course, soon I'd realize. But anyhow, so uh, we got another shot um, at a single fish. And... Uh, I truly believe, I can show you the photo, I think it was 12 pounds. I think my first bonefish was 12 pounds. I think it was. Uh, I would say, if you want to argue it, it's 10 to 12 pounds. I, I still, you look at the head and shoulders. I mean, it's, it's all about the cone to the gill plate and how it you know, flares out on how big that fish is. Because you know the, the bonefish, it slides back in right behind the, the gill plate. You know, so it's all about the, it's all about the head and then the shoulders. Yeah, that girth. Yeah, and, and and this fish, I think you've seen that photo, right? I I think you have, and I truly think that fish was twelve pounds. And God, the, the screen, there is no fish. I mean, other than maybe if you want to make an argument about a barracuda, um, that has the bursts of a bonefish, especially a biscayne bonefish. I was lucky. Uh, I was extremely lucky uh, to be able to present a correct fly to that fish and to willingly, uh, I should say, unwillingly understand how to feed that fish because that's not fair. That's not fair. You know, I uh, I went down to, I, you know, immediately when I moved down to here to Sanibel, um, I spent three months. I didn't own a rod. Not a rod. And I sat on, I stood on a flat for three months in Sanibel, and I was seeing 40-inch snook all the time. And I said, I am not going to buy a rod until I understand this flat. And so that's not fair. It's not fair for someone to just walk down there and to just catch that fish to me. And it was, it was special. I mean, it was special, but I didn't know how special it was. Yeah, I didn't know that this fishery was just going to go away. You know, it means something to me. It truly means something to me that I at least saw it. And, you know, while going down the rabbit hole of, 
you know, Walker's Case Chronicles, oh, the Walker Case Chronicles. God, 20 years ago, they were talking about, oh, these fish are all of a sudden making a comeback. I'm like, really? Is This is that bad? So we're just going through the ups and downs, the ebbs and flows through... It's a cycle. I mean, I just, I don't understand it. And I'm I- extremely happy to hear that, uh, you know, the bone fishing is starting to come back in, in Alamorada and Biscayne and... Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's just, I was so lucky to have experienced that at, at its peak. So, from that experience, you're living on the dock. You get that special day with Perry. What are you doing with your with, with the other time? Are you working? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing? Just I was laying about? <laughs> God, am I really going to be honest with the world right now? Let's hear it. Yeah, I mean, I won't be. I, I, I mean, I went down to Holiday Island. I, uh, if there was a pizza left over, I'd, I'd eat a slice. I, I, I definitely do that. Um, yeah, I mean, I was struggling. Uh, I, yeah, I was. Did I, you have a plan? No. Um, I remember walking into. Uh, I remember walking into Florida Keys Outfitters and sitting down with Sandy asking for a job. And he wanted no part of me. And it didn't have to do with anything that he had heard of me. This was the first time that he was seeing me in person. He didn't want to have anything to part me. Um, I mean, that was, that was the, the thought, is that I was going to be in Alamorada. And so I, you know, I had to eventually understand life is mm-hmm. that you cannot continue this. So I had to go back to Chicago. I had to go back to Chicago. I re- recuperated and, and, and reassessed my understanding of, of what it takes to sustain life and to be a, an individual, um, <laughs> a, an operating individual who pays rent and, you know, and, and, uh, and makes money. Operates and, within society. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and so I went back to Chicago, you know, for for another summer season to do Jump Crew. And then I was like, I'm going back to Florida. And at this point in time, I was like, all right, I've got a plan. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop in Alamorada for a little bit. I'm going to see if I can stay there. But then I'm going straight to Key West. And that was the case. Um, I was in Alamada for probably a day. I'm like, Mm-mm, nope, this isn't happening. Second trip down. Was it a, a train trip again? Yep, again. Okay. Yeah, again, it took the same trip. I think this time it was, they actually stopped us in Pittsburgh. And because the train was late, they uh, exited everyone off the train in Pittsburgh and took us on a bus to go to, because it was supposed to go to New York. And then they, they exited everyone that was supposed to get on Miami. They exited us on a bus and then took us to Philadelphia and then caught the train to Philadelphia. And then we drove down and I actually met a girl. I'm skipping ahead. Um, yeah. And then I, I took the, I took the bus down to Alamorada and then I stayed there for a couple of days and I was like, nope, this isn't happening. And I had no idea 
the expanse of Key West at that point in time, the job availability at that point in time. And um, so I immediately got on the Greyhound bus, uh, bought a ticket, went down to Key West, and I met a girl on there. I had no idea what I was going to do. And um, this girl said, hey, you could stay at the youth hostel. I said, youth hostel? What the hell is that? She said, oh, there's a youth hostel. It's that you can stay in bunks. It's like maybe 25 bucks a night. You can stay there. And um, so I got on the bus, went down to the kiosk, and I was like, holy shit. I mean, you, you got to understand, someone that doesn't, the internet is, it's not like I can just Google Zoom into Key West and see the expanse of it. I mean, I remember it as I was eight years old, but I didn't really know how big it was. Right. And all of a sudden, it's just like I get there and I'm like, oh, my God, endless opportunities here. Do what you want. I mean, it's not like, I mean, Colorado compared to Key West is, yeah. is night and day. Absolutely. And... uh just the density. Yeah, for sure. And um, I got into the youth hostel day one, met a bunch of people, and then I walked down to Wall Street, the Shorty's Market, big old help wanted sign, went straight to work there at Shorty's Market. Annie, she was English, um, originally, obviously, originally from England, uh, and her, uh, her husband, Isaac. God, what an amazing man that is. Um, but, uh, oh, I'm, I'm hoping that I won't get shot for this. But there are things about Kiwas that I don't think people know. Is that uh, Kiwas is run by the Israeli mafia. Yeah. And um, and that's what I started to understand. And, and when I worked at Shorty's, they learned that they could trust me. Like, they wouldn't trust anyone that wasn't their own. And they were like, oh, okay, this kid comes from here. Um, he's a hard worker. And I went right up the totem pole. And they were like, all right, you can open. You can close. You know, you can have the alarm code, blah, blah, blah. God, I keep saying that. I hate that. Um, and Isaac was, like, the nicest person in the world. And he, he immediately, so I was sleeping outside. Once the rent, once the money ran out, I was sleeping outside, and I was sleeping outside behind uh, the youth hostel. And uh, and Isaac, he came to me. He said, "Don't bullshit me. Where are you sleeping?" I said, "I'm sleeping outside." He said, "All right, Mike." He said, "Come with me." And they had other places that they they call these conch houses, as to where you know you rent a room in the conch house, and then there's a shared kitchen, a shared bathroom. And uh, and so he said, I'm going to put you right here. I will front you, you know, your first month, your first week. You paid by the week is what you did. Right. And he said, I will front you your first week. And Isaac was incredible. He was unbelievable to me. And I, I cannot thank him enough for that. So how long did you work there? I worked there for, I think it was maybe six months. At what point, you know, you're, you're now back in the Keys. You, the, the reason you came back, I'm guessing, is because that 10 to 12 pound bonefish was fucking haunting you. You knew that's where you wanted to go back. Yeah. So when did you uh, put your toes back in the water towards doing some fishing? 
it's it had been a while. I I gotta t- I gotta tell you this one story that uh, there was this uh, this guy um, that this Israeli guy uh, who's a real asshole, and he would you know, and, and when Isaac wasn't available, he would sometimes and like often rarely, but sometimes take over. And I remember him pulling me back into the office, and. I would. I went into the office and uh, he yelled at me, screamed at me, and then I remember grabbing him by the shoulders because I thought because he lunged forward towards me, I thought he was going to punch me. Right. He was screaming at me. Like I mean, I don't know if you know what like how like Middle Easterns like how they scream at you. Like they get they get really revved up when they're when they're angry. And it's like had an anger streak to him. But never showed it to me. He was always thankful and grateful to me. But this guy was just like on me. And he lunged forward to me. And he's half my size. So I picked him up and I threw him across the room inside the office. And then I remember uh, I remember him saying that I'm going to have you killed. You're going to die. <laughs> and I remember, remember after the shift, I remember coming back to work the next day. And then Annie was there. She's a she was a tough she's a tough woman, and she laughed at him, and she laughed at him saying that. But then, let's go to you know, bada bing, Sopranos. Like Annie was like, Isaac wants to talk to you, and so I have to go down three blocks on the front street. And they have that kind of office, like Sopranos, bada bing. And I'm like, all right, what the fuck is going to happen? And Isaac put his arm around me and said, hey, Mike, you got to control your anger. What happened? Just tell me what happened. I said, I thought he was going to punch me. And he knew me. I'm a very, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm very docile. So, but anyhow, so, yeah, so we got to the point as to, um, I, uh, you know, I was working at Shorty's, and then I said, uh, you know, this isn't going to make the money. And then Mike Z came into the, into the scene for Mr. Z's, and he said, hey, listen, I'm going to, I'm, I'm opening this. And I'm skipping over a lot of stuff right now, because I'm skipping over, a f- I fired two guys, and they, they tried to kick my ass, and... And then Mike C, it was right in front of Mr. C's. And Mike C, like, she locked the door. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to be part of this. And, um, but, uh, yeah, so Mike C, that's how I met Mike C. And uh, he was like, man, I really want you to come work for me. And I was like, we're starting something great here at Mr. C's. And and just, let's, let's go for it. So, yeah, I, it was after Fantasy Fest of, I think it was uh, Mr. Z's opened in uh, oh, April 03, something like that, or 02. And uh, I started working for Mr. Z's. And that's when I decided that I also wanted to get a part-time job. The stupidity of me. I was like, okay, this, I just want to try to get the discounts to work for a fly shop. So I walked into the Saltwater Angler and talked to Jeffrey Cardenas. And Jeffrey... Jeffrey yeah, he didn't want it. I, I, I'm skipping ahead. I did that the first time I got the kiosk, and Jeffrey took a look at me while I was still living outside, and he was like, mm-mm, not happening. And, uh, but the second time, he was like, okay, yeah, all right, let's do this. 
And I thought, oh my God, I'm now going to get into it. I'm going to get the fish with Jeffrey. It's like, no, uh-uh. And, you know, while I was working there, it was like Jeffrey would walk up to me and be like, oh, I found this, like, really pretty shell. I'm like, all right, enough, Jeffrey. I just want to fucking hear like, I just want to go fish with you. That's all I want to do. And um, so I was working at Mr. Z's pretty much, it was pretty much six, seven days a week. And I met with Jeffrey. I was working at Saltwater Angler. And then it just got to a point where I, I couldn't keep that up. It was like I was showing up late. I still have the fire ladder. I'll share it with you once I get back to the house. Um, it says, uh, it, it, he said something that really resonated with me um, when I told him that uh, he said, I have to fire you because you're not showing up on time. And, and I said, well, I'm working a full-time job. He said, you knew what you were signing up for. Come on, man. You knew that. And that really resonated with me. I had a lot of respect for Jeffrey. I mean, he was one of my guys that you, you want to fish with. And I still have that fire letter. It's in his, Mark, it's in his uh, sea level book. It's still there. I can share with you. I think it was God. I think it was 2003. It was it was dated, and, and it, the book isn't signed, but the fire letter is. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah. And so, you know, to kind of speed things up with it, one day Will Benson walked into, you know, I'd fished with another game, another guy named uh, Ernie. Um, his father owns a shit ton of uh, uh, mines in uh, Virginia, you know, West Virginia, owns a bunch of car dealerships. Um, his his uh, sister was on uh, the, what is it, the Bridesmaids, whatever the show was on it. Emily Maynard, she was on that. And I got to fish with them. And this was right when Hell's Bay was going down the tubes. Okay, so we're, we're around... Oh, late oh four. Yeah, and so Ernie was like, "I want a boat," and so I was like, "Well, what do you think about Hell's Bay?" And who was the previous owner to um, to to Peterson? What was his name? Oh, he was from uh, Alabama. Uh, I'll think of it here in a second. Anyhow, so I was like, "You should look at the." The Hell's Bay. So they got the catalog. I'm sitting there. His name is David. Brian David. Broderick. Yeah. David Maynard. So I'm, I'm sitting there with the catalog. And I was like, dude, look at the Marquesa. The, the HB Marquesa. And so what happened is that that was supposed to be Flip's boat. But because they were going down the tubes and they were taking money from anyone possible and they were also stealing you know, deposits from guys at the point in time. God, I remember Ben something was also a guide who was the fishing writer for the Key West uh, uh, local paper. He got his deposit stolen from HB. Um, and uh, yeah, I remember you should get an HB Marquesa. You should go through that. And then all of a sudden it was like, there is the HB Marquesa. We have one available. It was supposed to go to flip. But then it all of a sudden showed up, and he sank it within three weeks. Damn. Yeah. But anyhow, so uh, let's get back on track uh, as to 
Will Benson showed up. I'd met Will, or I'd met Will through uh, Sarah Benson, who is an incredible woman. His mom was the general manager of of uh, the Saltwater Angler at the point in time when Jeffrey was was owned, when when he owned it. Um, and uh, I think Sarah might have said something to Will as to like. Hey, listen, there's this kid that just wants to fish. That's all he wants to do. And I remember Will walking into Mr. Z's. And he said, hey, man, let's go out. Let's do this. Let's just go out. Let's have fun. I've been trying to go out with this previous guy, and it just wasn't working out. And I said, hey, man, let's just go out. Let's just, let's, let's go do this. Let's just go have fun. And I said, no. I said, I'm over it. I'm done with it. I don't know what's going to go on with my life from here and there. I don't know what I'm chasing, but this just isn't it right now. I don't know what's going on with me. And then, thankfully, he came back in again. He said, listen, man, I'm serious. Like, things are going on right now. Let's, let's get you into this. Come on. Come out with me for a day. So I was like, okay. So I met him. I think it was two days later. We spent the entire day around one key and had maybe 25 to 30 shots at permit. Fuck. One day. And, and, and again, the same key. We didn't move. They were just coming in. They were coming from every direction. And that's where the joke comes, well, did you catch it from the back cast? Right. Yeah. And, and that's... But that's what it was. My first permit, it was on a back cast. And I was hooked. I was done. I was, when can we go out again? You know, um, you know what do we have to do next? Well, I just, you know, I just, you know, and then again, you know, we... We got again. We went together again in uh, April for tarpon season, early tarpon season, and then um, I don't know. It just spiraled. It's all did. It just it went from zero to 100 miles an hour. So your relationship with Willie um, started off with just a goodwill gesture from him. Hey, let's go fish. I paid for it. Oh, okay, you paid for it. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. Now that he's taking you out and giving you a it's little, not like, it's little, not like your local truck dealer. You don't get the first ride free. <laughs> okay, well, but he did take you somewhere where you got you yeah. got uh, a good bump, right? Oh, I got a major bump. And yeah. uh, now, now you're now you're jonesing. So um, I, I'm taking it that uh, life went from Mike working at Mister Z's to. Mike's now working at Mr. Z's to figure out how many more permit trips he can. Yeah, book. absolutely. Yeah, it was um, fuck fuck bills. I'm. This is basically you're working. Uh, you're an indentured servant now uh, to to permit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I definitely. I went from. I got worse every year. Now, I, I did you was, did you was, stay exclusively with Willie? Were you mm-hmm. monogamous? No, I, I'd fished with a couple of guys before then. Um, I'd fished with before Will. I fished with Drew Delashmit. Okay. Um, oh God, he's an amazing guy. I love. I really love fishing with him. He's and he's the first guide. Uh, God, 
again, we're going to run into time issues, but he was a guide. We caught four permits in, I think, 45 minutes. Holy shit. And three of them were on foot. Yeah, so I mean, we're going to run into time issues, but yeah, um, the uh, the thing that happened was that uh, it progressively got worse, and you know that's the thing to focus on is is every single December, Will would say, "How many days do you want?" I'd say, "Add ten. You know, and uh, it was always add ten, and and I I just it just became an obsession. And it wasn't a good obsession. You know, it, this isn't the kind of thing you do in a relationship. Seriously. I mean, I mean, I've never, ever, I'm working seven days a week. I have a girlfriend who is a teacher who is also, you know, kind of working on, you know, you know sporadic, you know, shifts waiting tables and um, I was just like how many days can I work and Mike C was so great at that he's like you can work as many days as you want and then we went 24 hours and I was like oh boy 24 hours that means I get to work like I think the so it was two 12 hour shifts went to 4 a.m. and then there was a shift they, they stopped it from 2 a.m. until 10 a.m. so then I got to work two shifts in a night and I was like just give me all you can give just give it to me. That's all I want. It's like, I just need to be out there. And then I remember Will picking me up. And the first thing Will would always say to me when he picked me up, he'd be like, all right, how much sleep have you gotten? I'd be like, none. He'd be like, great. And and that's what, yeah, if, if, if we want to start, I don't know where what your timeline is right now, but if we want to start getting into the technical aspects of permit right now uh that's what formed me as a permit fisherman and that's where i started to understand that permit are a two-shot fish because if you understand sleep deprivation you understand that the first thing that goes is depth perception you don't you cannot understand what 30 feet is okay so when we would fish and I've been up for 24, 36, 48 hours, I fell short every, every time five feet. About every time five feet. And then that's where I learned to be able to recuperate that shot and be able to throw the second shot in there and then make it happen. And that helped me immensely. I mean, this was like the... Kind of like the, it's almost like a, a boxer finding their range. Yeah, you, you you're kind of that time. You're like, like you say, you've learned that you're coming up five feet short. Mm-hmm. Did it almost become that was your routine to find that distance, and then that second cast was defeated? No, it was more like uh, that's what just always happened, and okay. it wasn't like I was throwing an extra five feet the next time. It was just like this is what I'm seeing, okay, and then it's what I'm seeing is always going to be five feet short. And in the early days of fishing with Will, um, it was all about yelling. God, he was angry at me. I 
I think you've seen that video. And if you you can find that video, it's it's Mike A permit video on YouTube where he's screaming at me. Come on, going, come on, get in there. Come on, get in there. That was my first. Yeah, I think that was permit number 13, was it was. That was my, of course, that's the greatest number ever for it. That was like the worst day of my life where I cried. I actually cried. He was yelling at me so much that I cried. And, um, you know, it's just, people say, you know, you look at guides' websites and they say, no yelling. You know, we just want you to experience it and be happy and enjoy yourself. For me, it was like, no, I want that. I wanted it. I needed that. I needed that yelling to just get me into the situation as to where I could propel myself forward and make myself a better angler. Because that that's what made me a better angler was the guy in the back of the boat. And... Um, and, and we just went forward from there. And again, it just became more aggressive. And then what you have to understand is that if you're following in on the plan, I mean, the, the number one thing is that if you're an angler and your guide's a yeller, you have to buy into the plan. Mm-hmm. If you can buy into the plan and he can produce, then that's okay. Right. But if... You, if he's a yeller and you and you buy into the plane and he doesn't produce, and that's 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 the no. it's never going to work. No, right. it's never going to. I'm getting yelled at for nothing. Yeah, exactly. But that was the difference for with Will. Will was he was, oh my god. I'll never forget 2006, my first tournament. Uh, I think day one or day day two of pre fishing. What tournament? Uh, the Marsh Merkin. Okay. 2006, my first tournament. He said, do you want to see what this is going to be like? Because we've lived our life in the Marquesas, the circle. I, I, I could tell that's my home. You know, when I die, I want my ashes spread in, in the Marquesas. That's my home. Um, he said, do you really want to see what this is like? And I think it was blowing maybe 15 to 25. And there were, there were maybe five, six, seven, eight-foot rollers that were going on. And he was like, okay, I'm going to show you what it's like. And imagine if you're watching Supercross, mm-hmm. where they skip across one jump and go on to the next jump, that was it. If there's one thing, one noise that will ever haunt me, it's that of a prop coming out of the water. It's like this, like you hear the ocean and then you hear and just we skipped over jumps and we came down on other ones and we skipped over jumps and we came down over ones it was just like i was like wow okay so this is a thing and and i was i was blown away I, i i bought into the system i was like this is fucking incredible like i'm like i don't i've what have i been missing in my life with this and uh, I remember at day one of the 2006 March Merkin, uh, my first tournament, God. So we're running across the Marquesas, and it's blowing. And 
Will does the same thing that he did on the pre-fishing day. Right. But he didn't judge it right. Oh, no. So we stopped the wave. And the cap off the pro trim casting platform ripped off, came back at us, and hit the center console, like nearly from breaking our faces. And then, and then the, the whole boat was full of water. I mean, there was shit floating. The whole boat was floating full of water. And, and this is why I didn't care. From here on out in the future, I didn't care how bad it was blowing. It could have been blowing 45 to 55. If Will said, I want to go to the Marquesas, I knew I was safe. Because he knew exactly what to do. What he did is he hit the gas and the water dumped out the back. And I was just, I was flabbergasted. I was like, holy fucking shit. And I remember the biggest laugh was when we got back to the dock because we had to take the cap off um, while we were running. Uh, We got back to the dock. I think it was the next day for day two. There was just a frame of the pro trim. And then I think Ernie Maynard said to me, because he was fishing with Tom Rowland, for the tournament, Ernie Maynard said to me uh, that uh, Tom Rowland thought you were doing it for aerodynamics. <laughs> <laughs> Got to get that half a mile an hour of speed, <laughs> beat somebody out there. Yeah, I mean, oh God, I mean, those are some great times. So that's your first tournament. Um, yep. How'd it go? It went terrible. Yeah. Um, I was horrible. I was terrible. I mean, I, I had a year on, like a year under my belt. It was horrible. I was terrible. I was ultimately terrible. And then I think uh, you know, it was uh, you know they didn't have a Del Brown that year. And then then I think they did. I I can't remember right, but I remember the first Del Brown uh, they had in July. Will said, "I'm fishing it with another guide," and I was pissed about that. And um, but anyhow, but uh, but the you know the whole instance of you know in regards to uh, being too tired to. Uh, to fish, to understand, um, you know, the depth perception. It's it's kind of like like Navy SEAL training, and that's what really made me a better angler. Is to say, as the uh, you know, this is a double shot fish, two shot fish, and that you know, you just have to collect yourself and understand that uh, you know, it, it isn't the end of the world. I mean, I'm not the most perfect caster, that's for certain. But I, I could place a fly there, but I have to be able to recuperate myself enough to get a second shot in there. And that's the important thing. There's a lot of things that I've, I've learned about permit over the years. Um, I, and you got to understand that I said one thing to John O'Hearn via uh, messenger. I said, God, all this, we're, we're talking, I, would, I was fishing permit for four and a half years. That was it. Four and a half years. So you and I are talking about four and a half years of serious permit fishing. And this is what I learned. What I learned is that permit, I believe, are nearsighted. Why do I believe that? Because when you drop a fly that isn't on their head, 
they use their body to kind of understand what's going on. So when you drop a fly that they don't have sight on, they're sliding towards it instead of peck fins out and wiggling towards it. I mean, that's one of the things I understood. Right. So that's why I think that, you know, permanent, they, they don't, they have these giant eyeballs, but I don't think they have great eyesight. And then, you know, there's the other thing is that, I don't know. I just, they're difficult fish. They are. I mean, you could ask any person as to why a satellite dish shaped fish would have fins on itself and, you know, and walk itself or swim itself through two to three feet of water. Why would it do that? You know, and, and they'd say, so again, is the, is that why it's so difficult? Yeah. Those fish don't belong on there. That's not their home. They're there because of, for one reason, is to eat those crabs. And, you know, those crabs aren't abundant. They're not. I mean, if you take a whole, you know, a football, uh, uh, take a football field, you know, a, a, a crab junction may be maybe just you know just a, a small circle of it but they're using their body to understand where those crabs are mm-hmm. and i don't know it's just it's a difficult fish it's a difficult fish and uh it's just it's something that uh you have to understand but i i don't i don't have any people always say so how do you feed them well it's easy you read the fish no i can't tell you how to feed them i don't i use what's called mostly it's called the hand grenade method it's where that fly pounds them right on the face and all of a sudden they're like and that's what happened when i first you know it's been 11 years it's people are People are so focused on gear. They're so focused on lines. They're so focused on flies. I don't think they're focused enough on just putting the fucking fly in their face. And, you know, I I got back there in February of 2020, and, and Don Gable took me out there. I was using a 12-year-old fly, a 12-year-old SS fly. Out, and, yeah, I, I, I glued it. Yeah, I, I used the, you know, to glue the, the legs out and everything. I did that. And the first fish I saw, I hooked it. it. It was one of those situations that I rarely ever have is that, and I understand why it happened. It happened because the water was so cold. Um, I understand it was it was blowing, you know, 10 to 20 uh, the water, I think, was 71, 72. It's February. You know, these fish are just, they're coming back up, and, and they don't have any color, which is the biggest part. When these fish come from the racks, a lot of times they don't have color. When they spend six months on the racks, they don't have any color on them. Okay. So then when you get to those February days, that's when you start seeing these fish that, have no color, so it's really difficult. So, you know, when I fished with Don in 
February, it was like, you know, I always say as an angler, your job is 180 degrees, you know, to the bow. Mm -hmm. So from three to nine and then 30 feet out, that is your job. And you have to scour that. So when it's blowing hard, I couldn't tell you how many times I've hooked the permit that was almost a roll cast. It's I, it's, it's over ten. Just right there, bam. Yep, over ten. That was yeah number fifty. I remember number fifty perfectly. That was number just cloud cover. Fish in the boat was almost right over top of the fish. The fish was like down, nose down, and I dumped a fly, roll casted a fly to him, and it fell down. And the fish just immediately lifted up, saw the fly, and grabbed it. But the most important part of that is that the guide knows. He knows that on your first movement. And this was the greatest thing about Don Gable, because Will knows it. You know, we can go into you know excess about you know talking about permit fishing, but once you get to the point as to where you're better than the guide at feeding permit then he knows that on your first movement, he stops the boat. And that's what happened with Don. On my first moment, on my, I said, on my first movement, I, I, I started to cast and Don stopped the boat. And that was extremely huge as to the fact that we, didn't, we hadn't fished together very much. Right. But he knew, he knew. That obviously you'd seen something. Yes. And he wanted to. Stop it right on a dime and let you do your business. Yes. You cannot be a successful permit angler unless your guide is able to stop that boat when needed to be. And that's the fact. So he stopped that boat. You're fishing downwind most of the time. Not always. Not always. but And that's not my favorite shot. Okay. My favorite shot is into the wind. Um, into the wind, into the current, which the guides hate. That's my favorite shot. Um, when fish are facing into the wind, into the current, and the guide, I mean, this this happens often. I, in, I talked with, you know, John O'Hearn, and, and when they not and them caught one permit to win the tournament, that exactly is how it, it turned out. Into the wind, into the current. And the greatest thing about that is, is that you got a fish, let's say 40, 60 feet you know, 40, 50, 60 feet in front of you, it's blowing so hard, you can step cast. Do you know what a step cast mm-hmm. is? So you lay the fly down, let it drop, water haul, drop it again, pick it up, water haul, drop it again. And the most difficulty, that's why it's my favorite shot, but it's also the most difficult shot because once that fish, so you drop it on the side of them and they see it, once that fish turns, then the guide has to let up on the push pole and let that boat float backwards in order for me to get a good shot, but not too much. Cause if he lets it float backwards too much, then I don't get any play. Right. So, I mean, these are the, the, this, there's a lot of minutia, a lot of nuance. This this game is such a mind fuck. And that's why I really loved it. So let's get back to, you know, you are what, a year into it, when you decided to do your first tournament, uh-huh. um, it's a shit show, according to you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't go well. Um, the summer, um, Will goes, uh, fishes somebody else 
for the Dell. No, he fished it himself. Oh, he fished it himself. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, are you doing any other tournaments other than uh, permit, or are you strictly permit tournaments only? <laughs> I don't know if this is the road you're trying to go down, but yeah, I tried to do a in Alamorada tarpon tournament. I don't know if that's it, but I'm just asking questions. Yeah, um, yeah, I tried doing that. I don't know. Again, are we are we gonna be? You know, I'm not going to you know mention names or anything, but uh, uh, we're getting far down the timeline. I'm just trying to understand if where you, what you want me to. I, I just want to, I, what I want is from the angler's perspective, tournament fishing. Yeah, and you know, obviously, you've got the permit tournament experience. You've got tarpon tournament experience. How do those two interrelate? You know, is it? I don't have tarpon tournament experience because I ducked out of it. Um, and that's a long story. All right. So we'll leave that for another time. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So uh, when you want to talk about tarpon tournaments, so there was a point in time as to where I was fishing with, uh, I was fishing with, uh, with Will during tarpon season on, on wherever it was. I got tired of it. It was a terrible location. Um, it's a great location for those that aren't that great at fishing because you get rollers first thing in the morning. Uh, I can say it's in the Marquesas. Um, but, uh, yeah, but it's also the greatest, one of the greatest things that you ever do as an angler is to roll out to the mark, is to run through the Lakes Passage at 4 o'clock in the morning. And you see the, what is it, the bioluminescence mm-hmm. running off the back of the boat. And there's worries as, uh, what the, f- you know, what the fuck is rolling through the front of your boat? And there's, it's black out. It's black. And then, you know, and then Will is, you know, he's popping off the, you know, the cover on on the uh, GPS, and then he's popping it back on because he's also got a watch. It's one of the most magical things that you can ever do is to run from Key West to the Marquesas in pitch black at full speed. Um, it's pretty, it's up there as pretty things, as one of those things that you have to understand. Um, I did that. I was so lucky to do it. Um, Jeffrey sold uh, the shop, um, Saltwater Angler, to... David May- Maynard, which was Ernie, who I was talking about earlier. And Jeff- Jeffrey went on some sort of excursion and then came back. And all of a sudden, he started guiding again. And I was the first one to get a call. Then he's like, he's like, hey, do you want to fish? And I was like, well, fuck yeah, I want to fish. And I don't know, do you want to hear about this? Yeah, side? hell yeah, let's hear it. All right, so... We've been fishing a couple of times earlier, and um, so this is, I think this is one of the ultimate experiences to me as an angler to understand the ebb and flow um, of guides with one another. And Jeffrey had me, so he got me, and Will was fishing with another angler, and Jeffrey was, uh, was Will's, like, you know, he, he Will looked up to Jeffrey as a kid, mm-hmm. and they were very close. Kind of a mentor, yeah, absolutely. And Jeffrey is—he's so soft-spoken, 
but deep down inside, he's a fucking killer. Like that guy, you'll never know it, but he is. He will end all. He has to. Right now, he's sailing around the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he is the end all, be all. And his stories. I mean, I think he, he's. It took him seven years to graduate from UF as, with a journalism degree, and I believe um, he. Because these are all the stories he told me while fishing. Um, he, uh, he he actually got the mayor to allow him to spend a night in in jail to find out the conditions. Okay. So he spent, I think, a week in jail with inmates. Just to write a story, and he, he actually had to get the mayor to sign off on it, or the governor of Florida to sign off. He's crazy. I mean, there's so many stories about Jeffrey. So it's like, I just want to fish with him. So we've been fishing together for just a little bit. And then, so I remember leaving uh, the Marques. This is tarpon season. And I always told Jeffrey, I, said, I don't want a tarpon fish. I hate tarpon fishing. I really don't like doing that. But he's like, hey, just give me the morning. You know, you think we're not going to permit fish in the morning. I'm like, okay, let's do that. So, Jeffrey, we go, first thing in the morning, darkness. And we go straight out to the Marquesas. And we go to this one side. And he posts up. Guess who he posts up next to? Will Benson. Yep, that's what he does. And he's like, he's swinging his dick. He's like, guess who I got? And... I I think we put a couple fish in the air, and then all of a sudden, Will motored out of there. And then all of a sudden, Jeffrey said, we're moving. And I said, okay. And then Jeffrey cut through Mooney Harbor, and then I'm just sitting there like, okay, we're moving. I mean, I don't really give a shit. It's fucking tarpon fishing. All of a sudden, we nearly collide with Will Benson. Like, out of nowhere. I wasn't looking, like, path behind me. We nearly collide. And all of a sudden, both bolts shut down. And then I just see this fucking stare down between Jeffrey and Will. And I'm like, oh, my God. This is fucking incredible. <laughs> and, and, and then, like, Front I row just, seat. they're just like, you know, I, they're, they, they knew exactly where they were both going. I, I, or at least one of them know where they were going. I don't know. But then there was this whole explanation. I, I don't know. I just thought that was one of the most amazing moments as to where Jeffrey was just like, he's a killer. I mean, he's an unknown killer is what he is. Like, he's the kindest, gentlest guy, but deep inside, he's the guy that will just end you if he needs to. And I remember fishing. I remember, so after that day, we, you know, we spent time in the Marques, not at the end of the game. Later on that day, we went to another spot. And, um... <laughs> We started to get into permanent. Like, I started to, like, wonder. Like, this guy's been away from the game for five, six years. I started to wonder, does he still have it? Does he really still have it? And then he put me on this spot. Because I remember, like, our previous times, like, a couple times, like, we ran all the way around. And he put me on the spot. And we were covered in permit. I mean, covered. And, um... God, I remember getting angry one time. I I didn't trust him. 
And that was my, that was my failure. I didn't trust him to to pull fast enough. So I made a hail mary, and while doing so, my fly got hogtied. But the fish still ate it. She it didn't hook up. Right. So it popped off. I'm getting so fucking angry. And Jeffrey is like the dad. He's like, <laughs> he stops the boat, stakes us out, sit us out. I'm swearing. I'm angry as fuck. Swearing. He goes, let's go tarpon fishing. Do you want to go tarpon fishing? If you don't calm down, we're going tarpon fishing. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, no, Dad, I, I, I've got my shit together. Yeah, and then I, I just said, you know, I said, no, I will be good. I will be good. Yeah, we landed, we landed four fish that day. Yeah, it was incredible. Uh, it was an amazing. God, the amount of stories like I can tell. So, permit tournament fishing. Huh. 2009? Uh-huh. Your first tournament win, right? Uh-huh. And that was the March. March Merkin. The yeah. March Merkin. Yeah, so the 2009, so what had happened in 2008 is, um, what had happened in 2008 is uh, John Ain and, and Dave Horn came up to me, and this was through a guy that I'd met, Kevin, who owned his own boat and who was just a regular snowbird and so i ended up and i ended up fishing with him a lot um on the back of the boat mm-hmm. um so one of the biggest things that will pushes is that you're not going to learn fishing until you learn the front end and the back of the boat so i met kevin who had a boat and he loved fishing for permit with crab and i will tell you the first time i ever saw a permit eat a live crab i yelled out Fuck, that's not fair. That's not fair at all. It's not fair. You know, you see a permit react to a live crab instead of a fly. It's not fair. But it teaches you to be on the back of the boat and to learn to spin the boat, feel how like everything goes, to be able to do everything that teaches you. And that's what made me a better angler. Um, yeah, so 2008... Um, you know, 2007, we were banned from the Merch Merkin. I don't think we've even gotten into that. I no, know. let's hear that. Let's let's. You were banned yeah, from the we tournament. Yeah, we were banned from the Merch Merkin in 2007 because there was a specific rule that said that uh, you uh, had an hour between. Uh, God, it was between I think 7:30 and 8:30 to get to the flat, sit on the flat, and. Um, I believe it said, like, you couldn't have a rod out, but I don't believe it got specifically into whether you could pull the flat. So Will was pulling the flat, and, and said, it said you cannot fish between the, between the hour of 7.30 and 8.30. And, uh, and so this is, like, the, the tournament ends. I get a call from John A. and saying, you're banned from the 2007 tournament. And I said, why? He said, because you guys were fishing during time. I said, what's fishing? I said, you're pulling. He said, pulling is fishing. Pulling is not fishing. I was sitting on the cooler, and he was looking for fish. And the most ridiculous thing of, of all was that they changed the rule. I believe it was that year. that It was, just a, it was a gunshot start from there. That was the most ridiculous thing ever. But they said, they, I think they had, they had a vendetta against Will, is what I believe. Um, because 
you know, they said to me, can you find another guide? If you can find another guide, then you can fish the tournament. That's what Johnny said to me. Well, it could be that they perceived that by Will being the one pulling the boat, Will was the one that was violating yeah. that rule. I don't know. I, but, I, but anyhow, but it, it, this brings up another question that I've got. Um, so when it comes to the tournaments, um, there's definitely the, the tournament director, tournament um, committee. And uh, from year to year, there's rule changes from time to time. Would that be accurate? Uh, not really. Uh, I would say for the because it was the first year of the Marsh Market, and I think they were, I think Johnny and, and Dave Horn, and then they pretty much uh, adhered to everything that was in in the Del Brown, aside from measuring permits. Okay, so but I've no, I know that. Um, one of the, I don't know, I want can't say how recent it showed up in the rules, but uh, specifically like the March Merkin, um, let's say that I wanted to fish the March Merkin next mm-hmm. year. I have to apply, mm-hmm. uh, be accepted, yeah. and then if there's a space. But I think that, uh, one of the rules, just going through the rules, that I thought was the most interesting rule is basically – Tournament behavior. Ah, oh boy. Here we go. Where, where did that rule come from? <laughs> here we go. <laughs> Is that a rule? It's a rule. Okay, so I don't think that was a rule back then. But do you think you might have any idea why that rule exists today? Possibly. Let's, yeah, hear, I, I, let's I, hear your I, opinion of how that may have happened. I get the, you know, I look back at, uh, you know, um, it, what comes to mind is uh, the film Rudy. Okay. Um, the, where this, you know, A1 prospect, you know, in the film is practicing. And he said, all I'm trying to do is get ready for this game. This fucking asshole is playing like it's the Super Bowl. Yeah, that was what it was to me. It was a fucking Super Bowl. And I made it entertaining. Did I not? Who pays attention to these tournaments anymore? Nobody. Yeah. Did, did you remember the thread set for we're, we're, we're absolutely? The, yeah. And and you know it, it's led me to ponder this question: not just tournaments, but fly fishing in general. There's. It's almost like the Wizard of Oz. Nobody can see behind the curtain, but there's definitely the golden child is selected. There's a villain that's selected. (laughs) I think you're familiar with the villain um, role. And by eliminating some of that cast of characters vis-a-vis silly rules, you've made it less entertaining. In a, in a tournament, while it is a test of angling skill amongst a group of gentlemen, in order for the larger audience, the fly fishing community, to want to take notice of it, you want to have the underdog, the villain, the golden boy. I don't care. 
They don't care. So you don't understand. Here's the one thing you don't understand. I already went through it. 2009. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. 2009. I was in the Golden Fly. All right. Um, there's this. I don't think I wanted to disparage this rumor because I I enjoy this rumor. There's this rumor that that a bunch of people picked me up and threw me in the trash can. I kind of enjoy that. I, for the record. The 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 story is a dumpster. Dumpster. Okay, yeah, and that's completely untrue. It, God, why did I even say that? Because I kind of enjoy that more. The fact is, is that I got into an argument with another angler, and I had a drink in my hand, and then he grabbed me by the ankles and put me on the ground, and then offered to pay for my drink that I had spilled while it was in my hand. It was a dumb argument. And it was a stupid thing. We were both intoxicated. And, you know, there's also another thing that stated that I believe there were boxing gloves behind the bar at Lorelei. I don't think that's a real thing because they definitely would have been handed out at that point in time. Right. uh, No. um, Yeah. um, But that was Charlotte's tournament. Charlotte. uh, And Charlotte and I didn't get along. Um, I was fishing with a well-known guide whose father owned a fly shop in Alamorada. And I'd had some issues with him on day one of pre-fishing. And I was fishing with another well-organized person who actually runs the Golden Fly now. And even he said, listen, I've got some issues with what we just saw today. And I'm not going to mention names. But... um, I just decided it was day one of the tournament. I decided to pull out. I, I texted him. I paid him in full, tipped him, and I, you know, I, I said, uh, "Can you just, you know, keep your stuff in my, you know, keep your, keep my rods in in your boat, and I'll come grab them." I made an excuse. I think I think I made an excuse like, "Hey, listen." Uh, you know, my girlfriend's doing, has had a major thing. I have to go home. I'll come back and grab my rods. But in realization, I was like, oh, God, Just what you're saying. I don't want to do this right. with this guide. I don't want to go through three days with this, this guide. And the hardest thing was that my contact, my f- guide that I fished with in Alamorada was close to this guy. And, um, again, I'm not going to mention names. I don't want to go back there. But... Charlotte um, held that against me, and she tried to have me thrown out of the. Uh, so I just won the, the Merkin, and um, then we the, the, the happened. I, the the Golden Fly is the end of end of May, um, and she had to have me tossed. She tried to have me tossed from the Del Brown because she runs both of them, and. Um, and then I called. I called one person that I knew that was in the tournament, and then he called pretty much everyone else. And um, and they said, "Hey, we're not fishing this unless Mike's fishing this. There's there's no fucking point to it, you know? Why? Why would you throw him out for? I mean, she wasn't giving any reason. It was like, you know, she just said, "We're throwing you out." And I was like, "Well, fuck you. I'm gonna go find people that will fight for me and get me back into this tournament." And, oh, God, that was the most difficult tournament of my life. Who did you fish that one with? Well. Okay. Yeah. How'd you guys do? We, we hooked seven permanent on day one. 
Jesus. I think uh, if you look back at the stats, I believe I've caught the first permit in just about every tournament that I've fished in. And I've been uh, pretty much, I've been fighting for at least fourth place in every single tournament that I've fished, other than 2006. And I think 2008, where I was a dumbass and I cut my finger, which that's another time that we can talk about. Um, God, um, day one, uh, we roll out to the Marquesas, the first fish we see, I pop it, it's on, clear it, done, right next to the boat, the line breaks. I can tell you out of the 115 permit that I've caught, I've broken off maybe two doesn't happen like i don't i don't make these mistakes it does not happen and that's the killer i mean that's the that's the 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 end all be all of that can fuck your mind and you can just be like all right i'm starting this tournament out on a good foot and now it just clown fucked me (laughs) yeah and so yeah, you know, I mean, state of mind's got to play a, a huge always, role in it. Always, 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 always. You know, there's. it's funny because when we roll out to these tournaments, like, I'm listening to motivational music, but then I always end with opera. Always. Like, I'm listening to Phantom of the Opera right when we're, we're, we're idling down under the flat. That's what I used to do. It's just, like, calm me down. Like, I'd rev myself up and just calm myself down. But back in that stance, losing that first fish, uh, 2009, Del Brown, I I, I could imagine Will was like, oh, boy, fuck, this is going to be difficult. And I remember, like, rolling back around to the next spot. And you got to understand, this isn't a pretty game. Was that your final tournament? That was, yeah. That was my final tournament. This isn't a pretty game. Uh, I don't think that... Will and I were never really friends. We were really hardcore. Like, this is what I expect out of you. And once you get to the point of as to where you're a better angler than your guide, um, you're just like, this is what I expect out of you. And then your guide, you know, it says... This Reciprocates. Is what I, this, this, is, yeah. this is what I expect out of you. And there's a lot of angry shit going on, man. I don't think you understand that. I mean, this was, I don't think. Would you call it a love-hate relationship? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't believe that uh, this is the same Will Benson that you're seeing today. Back in those days, holy shit, that guy, like, again, his hair was on fire. And that was exactly the guy that I needed to, to be to excel, to be the person that I wanted to be. I needed to have the guy that wanted to just burn everyone. I don't give a fuck about anything. I want to win this tournament. That's what I needed to do. You, you talk about college recruits, they talk to their coaches, and this is the same thing. You know, I, This is a coach that I signed on for uh, four years, and four and a half years is what it is. And God, I'll never forget that. We went to the next spot. You know, we, I threw down a fly and I was short 
And apparently there was a colorless permit right behind it that was like tiny. And immediately when I went to go pick it back up, toss it back in, that fish moved towards the fly. And I turned around and I called Will motherfucker. Yeah, I was like, you motherfucker! Uh, and, and there's been some mean shit said between us. And I remember Will you know, stopped me saying, dude, you realize you just called me a motherfucker? Uh, and I was like, you know, he's yelled some meaner shit at me. But so I was like, yeah. And I, there was a, there's a lot of pressure. You have to understand that every single thing that I've done in my life, I felt that it hasn't been a success. I felt like it's been... Like something that I should have been done, you know, like the 2009 mark, and you know, I wanted, I didn't feel it as a success. It was just, you know, everyone expected me to do it. You know, when I, yeah, I won the 2007 Superfly. Everyone expected me to do it, and I've never been able to like celebrate it because I think everyone has expected me to do things, and I've never really celebrated anything in my life. I've never felt, I've just been, it's been, you know, it's been a sigh of relief when I won all those tournaments. It wasn't, fuck yes, it was, thank fucking God. You didn't have to hear the reasons why it went wrong. And no. The, the could have beens. No. But again, we go back to the 2009 Del Brown. Um, I've had one, one instance of fish spitting the fly. And that happened, I believe it was 2008, because I, I distinctly remember that, because Will came back from Louisiana, and I refused to go to Louisiana a second time, because I was like, once is enough. You know, I, I don't, I'd rather save up the money and just permit fish. And I remember him coming back and being like, oh, my God, you should see, you know, I've been, I've been doing nothing for the last month and looking at dark water, and now those all these clear water. And we fed three fish that day, and every single fish, the fly popped out. And it's like, what am I doing wrong? So the first fish was okay. I mean, for some reason, it broke off. Like, again, I've only broken off two fish out of 115. Um, then we went to go feed four fish. Uh, we went to go feed another two or whatnot, and... Um, God, we were on this corner in that situation where I told you where it's my favorite situation into the current, into the wind, which is my favorite situation. And, you know, when you're fishing, there's two different kinds of permit. There's winter permit and there's summer permit. Uh, The winter permit, um, they're much more difficult to feed. Uh, They're much more difficult to fight. Summer permit are much smaller permit. And those fish kind of just like group up into little rats. You don't see the bigger fish. In regards to, um, you know, uh, I have a whole scheme of things. But, uh, God, I had two fish spit the fly. I'm still trying to think as to why that happened. I still won't know why. Why did they spit the fly? I get if you break the fly off. But I've done nothing different than I've done for every single other one of my fish. And for some reason that fly came loose. Twice. Shit, shit happens. Yeah, but you, you got to understand, I lost that tournament by half a fish. And I retook the lead. Well, I got, I got 
I got zeroed on day two. And then on day three, we retook the lead. Uh, and I would say this was one of the... I don't, if, you ever, if you look at some of Tiger Woods' best shots in history... Can you look at that? Yeah. I think I, I remember Augusta. Uh, I think there was one shot that he made that everyone continuously talks about. There was this one shot that I made. It was the only shot I had the whole day because uh, the wind had shifted uh, from the the east to the west. And then it took time for it to take effect. So it took effect. The wind shifted to the west and it took time to take effect you know, from the Marquesas into East. So everyone was catching fish on day one in the Marquesas, and then no one was catching fish west of Key West. And then the people that caught fish on day two and day three were east of Key West. So that front rolled through. There's a difference in regards to winter and summer fish. Winter fish, as soon as they start to feel that, like, if, if, if tomorrow is going to blow, let's, let's say we're here today, tomorrow's going to blow west, they're gone. They're already gone. They already know. But when it's the summer, it usually takes an, an extra day to kind of really go through that. But, again, with that that special shot, you know, that, that Tiger Woods kind of moment, we had that this... this uh, you know, this rumbling fish that came through, just a single fish. I it didn't even know what the fuck it was. And I threw at it, dropped it right where it needed to be. I thought it might have been a bonefish. Hooked up to it, landed it, it was a permit. And that put us back in the leaderboard. Didn't have another, I had one other shot that entire day. And I lost by half a fish. Mm. And it was, oh, I, I I could tell you I, what I what I what I skipped out on is that before this tournament started, I'd said to the the girlfriend at the time that hey listen, I'm going to retire from tournaments after this. This is my last one. I'm going to win it, and this is going to be the end of it. And that is that's what I said to said to her. And so it was kind of like is is somebody kind of emotioning you saying you know. This isn't it. You got to move forward, or I don't know. Or are they, say, or are they saying stay in the game? I don't know. Because I mean, on I, some I know, on some level, all I know, even it, though you you, it seems to be a very conflicted place that you live in. Oh yeah, it is. Um, and though you say you've not been able to exhale and enjoy those wins. You sure must love it on some level to be fucking right there, knuckled under, fucking living it. I've had this idea that I've been floating around. You know, there's a reason why these fish get the way they do during tournaments. Imagine if there were 25 assholes with weed whackers running around you while you're trying to enjoy your drink on the patio. (laughs) You know, imagine what you must feel like. You know, and that's why these fish get the way they do. I mean, it, people say, you know, I'd like to fish a permit tournament. Sure, you can either fish, you know, with a guy during that time, or I'll give you another chance to do it, do it during mini season. You know, that's the, the dumbest thing anyone can ever do is fish permit during mini, mini season. Because it, these fish do not like the engine noise. They don't. I mean, it's just... I don't. I, I've been, again, I've been floating the idea of just a one-on-one tournament. 
you know, uh, yeah, well, I probably spark some energy. I, I'm never going to fish another tournament. I, you know, I, I'm in the midst of wanting to, to buy a boat, and we're sitting here waiting a fucking year, Bill. You know, to, you know to do it. But uh, you know, do I want to? You know, do 18 holes with a pitching wedge on Augusta? No. And that's what it would be if you were, you know, fishing alone, permit fishing. Because that's the draw of it. It's the teamwork. It's mm-hmm. it, it's it, that's what that's the niche of it. It's that's you know that's how you can't get that good alone. Yeah, when it all comes together, yeah. it's it's that joining of the power, of the front that's and the, the back. That's the high. And yeah. and that's why you know there's video, and that's something that I will say that will was masterful with oh, he was, was putting together the videos and bringing just the raw energy and the fucking hype and the release of your grinding and your you're working so hard and when all those pieces came together and that fucking tail was grabbed and it comes into the boat it's just this explosion of emotion and that was that was outside of tournament like just permit fishing in general yeah um and to his credit and discredit he changed the permit game because he popularized it with those films and now there's tons of people down there doing it it was going to happen regardless all right i don't i, I don't i don't blame him i mean no no it's not blame i'm just saying yeah you know, it's it's no different than the folks in Louisiana complain that you know there's guides that leave Florida during the winter and go up, and vice versa. There's guys that come down and, and fish the Keys for a season. The internet, the videos, the everything—it's making the world smaller. Yeah. And when people yeah, see shit, they go and do it. Yeah. Now we're going to wrap most everything up with one last question because it's getting late, and I know you've got places to be. From way back, um, my recollection, the first I ever heard of this idea was probably on the Drake message board or at least through the friendships that I've made on the Drake message board, which you were a big part of. Um, Your entire journey, um, which we've barely scratched the surface mm-hmm. of yeah. uh, just because of time constraints yeah. and and who knows maybe we'll get back together and, and we'll go yeah, deeper sure. but I've had one question asked by a friend of mine and I immediately was like oh my god I'd forgotten all about that but hell yes that's a question I want to ask as well will he be named? no <laughs> There was a time where your story was going to kind of be the basis, kind of the outline, and you were working on a book mm-hmm. that I believe that you... Blood Tide. Had yep. Blood Tide. Yep. What is the status of that? And that's the, the, the joke is that... Um, I wouldn't say the joke is that's how... I got, I'm sitting there like... In middle of, I put, I can't remember what class it was at Boise State. Sitting in the middle of the class, I get this random text, and it goes, "I cannot stop reading these 
first, you know, few, you know, first three paragraphs that you read because I included it in a, cl- a communications class that I had and I did a I don't know what what's the word for those uh, those you can you know do your own website you know remember that that yeah like a blog yeah whatever so I included that into it um, and I got this random text message and it was like I it's like Nat and I cannot stop uh, cannot stop like thinking about after reading these three paragraphs um of you know blood tide where's the rest of it and um i was like who is this and it turned out to be john o'hearn and uh it was just like yeah, i was like yeah, but yeah it's there it's there there's a lot of people that want to read it yeah i don't think it's that great I mean, it's there. You don't think winning a permit tournament's that great either. Yeah. So I'm not going to defer to you to be the judge of anything yeah. at this point. Yeah, I just, uh, I mean, I don't have any issue with, like, putting it out to people and, uh, uh, you know, letting them read it. It's just like, I just don't want to release it. I don't want that attention. It's just like, I, I could, I want to be honest with you. Okay. Um, you know, my girlfriend said to me this morning, what do you think about today? She said to me about yesterday, and I said, I don't want to do this. I said, I don't want to do this podcast. I don't really don't, I don't want the attention on me. I mean, you, you could think that's the exact opposite of some guy that in 2007 was doing nothing but posting it on the, on the web about everything that he did in regards to fly fishing on the Drake um, but I was like, I don't want to do this. I just don't want the attention. And that's me in a nutshell. I mean, uh, I was a different person back then. It took me a lot to get here. It really did. It took me a lot. Oh, I know it did. We've been talking about doing this yeah. since, what, fucking November or something yeah. like that. And that's just, I just, you know, I enjoy, what I enjoy in, in quickly, and I've been talking a lot with, um, a certain certain anglers and guides that are fishing these tournaments and I've been talking with them one on one about what they're doing wrong and then I've been talking with the guide on, on what they're doing wrong and then that excites me and, and I've been in flux with the situation of that I just want this off me I just want to be left alone and that's in the same sense where I just said do you want to play you know Eighteen holes in Augusta with a pitching wedge. Yeah, I really want to do that, but I at times I do want to go back into the limelight. But I really just want to be left alone. I don't want the limelight. That's not me. I mean, I mean, I have the voice for it. I mean, I, I went into the mortgage world. I can call. I can co-call anyone. Whatever. Whatever. It, it, I can turn up. I, I am what you called an extrovert introvert. And I'd rather be an introvert right now. So that's that's just me. Yeah, and that's the you know, wherever you're the most comfortable right now is where you should be. Mm-hmm. So with that, I want to thank you mm-hmm. because I've known for months that uh, you were adverse to sitting in the chair at the end of the old oak table and reliving chapters of your life that you've shared with me for the first time you've shared with a lot of people that are going to listen to this for the first time and i don't think that you have anything to fear 
in so far as you know bringing any negative attention to yourself i mean you've got this journey that you took and all of us do um and yours zigzagged you across the country mm-hmm. um you know a lot of people are gonna hear your story and go wow what a fucking ride mm-hmm. and it's brought you here today um you're a better person for it mm-hmm. And it's developed who you are. So you got no apologies to make. Mm-hmm. And I thank you for doing it. Yeah, and I, I cannot thank you enough for getting me over here. I mean, this place is, is truly special to me, uh, the Taylor Park. Uh, God, I, I cannot tell you enough how special this place is to me. And again, thank you so much. All right. Well, that's going to end this episode of A Whiskey With Mike Allen. Thanks for joining us.